Don't drink the Kool-Aid. We've all heard it. Heck, most of us have said it. It's an acronym from the 80s that has come to simply mean to not completely buy into an idea, whether good or bad. But the roots of the phrase are so much more severe, so much more frightening. In 1978, over 900 men, women, and children died from drinking the Kool-Aid. Well, to be specific, it was Flavor-Aid, but we'll get to that. Whether it be by their own hand or forcibly, these poor souls died in the steaming jungles of Jonestown, Guyana, at the order of their leader a maniacal, drug-addicted cult leader named Jim Jones. Until the September 11th attacks, the tragedy in Jonestown represented the largest number of American civilian casualties in a single non-natural event. In this two-part series, we'll explore not only the events that led to the horrific loss of life, but also the man responsible. How could one man hold that much power over his followers? What would compel a man to ask almost 1,000 people to lay down their lives? Are monsters born monsters, or do they turn into them? That's next on Hysteria 51. They say I'm disturbed. From city to city, an incredible hysterical panic spread. I think we're getting into a weird area here. Will you tell these fools I'm not crazy? Not crazy. hysteria. You can't handle the truth. 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 Brain is gone. This is Hysteria 51. The truth is out there. It's a lie. But you won't find it here. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. Welcome in Hysteria Nation to the podcast that wasn't at Jonestown, but, you know, one of our favorite albums is Sam's Town. This is Hysteria 51. Seabot, we're trying not, not to get sued. Correction, you're trying. He's like a child. He puts no value on money. I know you are, but what am I? Oh, God. We are broadcasting from the lower fourth dimension, otherwise known as Chicago, and we're your hosts and head whistleblowers, Brent Hand and John Goforth. And that third voice you hear is our resident idiot. I know you are, but what am I? Also, a robot I built to help with the show, and as you can see, he only hurts it. He is the one and only conspiracy bot. Soon to be the enormously wealthy conspiracy bot. What are you talking about? Remember last week I told you about my new alcohol line, Bot Booze? It's going really well. Wait, well, you're actually getting sales of rubbing alcohol? You realize this could literally kill somebody. I know. Great, isn't it? Anyway, I started calling it farm to table and I can't keep up with production. <laughs> you mean you can't steal enough in time? You have your truth and I have mine. Listen, buddy, listen. I can't and will not help with your production demands. What you're doing is dangerous, deceitful, and illegal. Segway, much like today's topic. Hey, kids, we have assembled an all-star group today to talk about this sad and crazy story. First, let's welcome back the man, the myth, the legend. Two weeks in a row after such a long pause, Joseph P. Peck Esquire. Pecker! Pecker! His name is Pecker. Esquire. Joe, I didn't realize that you uh, became a lawyer. God, you guys are lucky to have me here. Uh, That's all I have to say. A lot of people didn't know that there is a lawyer correspondence school, but him and Sally Struthers, they figured it out. Yeah, it was a two-week seminar. Where did you get the pamphlet for that? Because any correspondence school still has pamphlets. (laughs) uh, From a man on the street. (laughs) I didn't see a man about a pamphlet. He also tried to sell me a monkey. (laughs) I like that bumper so much, I think I want to play another one. How's that sound? Because next up... 
the return of the only other guest in H51 history to beg his way out of the show enough to get his own other bumper, Mr. Kevin Crispin. His name is... Kevin! Hey, yeah, man, boy, did I beg, I tell you what. And uh, I, I want to thank you guys because you, you called me and you said, hey, uh, we're going to do a show uh, about a monstrous narcissist, and we thought you'd be perfect. So <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to be here and, and to, to be the, uh, the expert uh, on no, site. There's no implication there other than we think that you're a little narcissistic and a bit monstrous. Well, Wait, I so wish you'd think I was a lot narcissistic. Yeah. So is this, is I didn't spend all like, that time in narcissism. Kevin's so insecure. He's like, what am I doing wrong? Yeah, why, what am I doing why, wrong? Why am I not a lot narcissistic? God. So now I'm really confused. Is the topic Kevin or Brent? It's. <laughs> oh. Oh. Said Joe Peck. Said Joe. I know that. Said Joseph. John, we got someone else here. Finally. Finally, a man making his debut in the lower fourth and hopefully his debut into your hearts. Doubtful. Mr. Christopher Markham. Woo! <laughs> Hello. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Was it that you heard that we were doing uh, a show about a cult that ultimately ended in suicide and murder, and you thought, yeah, yeah, I, I've got nothing to do with my Saturday? Ex- exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, so. I've been looking to start something. I might as well you know, get my P's and Q's together. <laughs> I almost feel dirty making that joke because of how horrible of a situation this is. I think you should is. feel dirty because you smell bad, but that's just me. Mm. All right, kids. Our all-star panel is assembled. Was that him flirting again, Joe? I can't tell. I can never tell. Typically. Yeah. It's always flirting. Bro. Now, a, a quick note. A quick note for how we're going to approach this. Jonestown is such a massive story. We're splitting this into two parts. People have been begging for multi-parters. You're getting one. So here we go. Do they right. know that's more Brent? That's more Brent. <laughs> yeah. Another you know, vitamin B in your diet. Oh, Wow. Uh, this week we're going to explore. Yeah, me too. Uh, this week we're going to explore Jones himself and and what it takes to become the monster that leads to nearly a thousand people to their deaths. And then next week we'll dive into the events that led to the tragedy at Jonestown itself. The thing I, I hope that we get across is it is this tragedy of events that happened to make someone the way. It it is now. Some people are born bad, but this is something that we're and we're going to look at his upbringing and everything. It really takes a lot to push someone to the point where they can, same as force, you know, nine hundred plus people to take their own life. Well, it, it takes a lot of uh, well, it, it takes a lot of mental unwellness, and 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 as we'll see, all the other contributing factors. But I think that's something we should always well, and that's why, keep in mind. That's true, but that's why this is such an interminably interesting topic, because I already disagree with you guys. I, I think sometimes monsters are just born, and we've got an example of one. There here. are monsters that are born, but you know what? Some people that are born get the proper help that they need. Another person that comes to mind is Dahmer. He had a loving father and things like that, and he just, you know, they interviewed him. He's like, yeah, I had a great growing up. I just was crazy. I just really knew what the inside of a rabbit looked like. Yeah, yeah, well, you know. Well, plus, when you get into Jones's childhood, it's a horrible childhood. It wasn't like right. he lived in a, in a loving home out of the fireplace yeah. and somehow turned out to be this evil person. Well, he was lived in a in a shack with no plumbing and no electricity. Exactly. And his dad was a, uh, a, an unapproachable alcoholic. alcoholic, probably really bad PTSD from World War One because yeah. he never really worked after he came back. Yeah, he ever. couldn't really do much. At that time, that was well, the time guys, his mom guys, worked. I yeah. think you've put the ball on the tee. Yeah, Let's go just, ahead and yeah. get into it. John, break down his upbringing if you can. James Warren Jones, better known as Jim Jones, was born on May 13th 
1931 in the small Midwest town of Crete, Indiana. Uh, his parents were James Thurman Jones, who was a World War I veteran, as Chris was saying, uh, and a victim of mustard gas attacks. Because of this, they lived on disability payments. And, yeah. and it's important to note the, the mustard gas attacks specifically. Uh, if you are a believer in you know, nature versus nurture, the nurture part, Jones' father did not talk much mm-hmm. at all. And they say it was because he was very self-conscious about, or it hurt, uh, his vo- his voice. Because mm-hmm. the mustard gas not only destroyed his vocal cords to, to one extent or another, but also his respiratory system. Yeah. Uh, and that, he didn't, so he didn't interact with his son. So then you're left with the mother. She was a lot younger. She actually worked odd jobs, which was actually really weird at that time, that the mother would be the one that's making the upbringing. Well, and plus, Lynetta was so different from anybody else in that little small town. We're talking about a small town in, in rural Indiana. Mm-hmm. And Lynetta was this woman who was wild, and she was abrasive and would mm-hmm. curse out loud in public and wear pants and go out drinking at night. <laughs> that's funny. Wear pants. She'd wear, wear pants. pants. And she she was a carouser. Oh, that's and, uh, mighty uppity, isn't it? Wait, wait, wait. Did you say pants? <laughs> Not exactly June Cleaver. So Joan's father, as you said, because of the things he had, he was absent. His mother was constantly working. So they were never around him. He had so much time to himself that there was no discipline for him he was quoted saying i didn't have any love given to me and that's not hard to imagine growing up with a father who's absent and a mother who's absent because the father's absent he said i didn't know what love was that's sad to hear from someone you know and because his family was from the you know quote wrong side of the tracks and also because he was fucking weird he didn't have many friends and he was a bit of an outcast Uh, 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 one of his neighbors actually felt bad for him and would take him to uh, her Pentecostal church so he could feel some sense of community because he was such a loner. Now, speaking of that, Pentecostal, like you said, pants, Pentecostal is the ones that women never cut their hair correct. Or they always wear dresses. But yeah, or... I mean, that's the, the kind of image that okay. you conjure up when you say Pentecostal. But there's all kinds. You know, there's the back in Appalachia, there's a... Uh, the only place in the world where they still snake, snake handle handlers. Yeah. yeah uh, it's been in the news that snakes. snake handler was just bit recently. Right. Uh, he did. That, he hey, did look, that that's going to make a comeback. All right. That's going to get out of Apple. Well, <laughs> I know you're doing your snake handling tour. Hey, whoa, God, don't give it away yet. We haven't booked it. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a major part. So I can tell you all about it. My dad's a Pentecostal pastor. Uh, oh, okay. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So what it's, it's most likely in Indiana that you're talking about not the wild Appalachian, you know, insane Pentecostal, uh, Pentecostal churches with stake handling, but it is highly likely as, as you were alluding to, Chris, especially in this time period, this would have been the unbelievably conservative. We don't go to mo- movies. We don't dance. You wear very unflattering clothing. Mm. Like, yeah, absolutely. That would be the very common way that this would come across. But the the segue is you would also have the fire and brimstone preacher yeah. who emotionally captivates an audience in a way that you don't get in a traditional church so where it's pretty a very, much what you're saying is he was going to go down one or two paths, either, you know, end up forming Jonestown or trying to organize a school dance for his senior year. That's right. At, rebel at, right outside of town limits. <laughs> Rebelling. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I, you know, really get angry and do. I mean, that, that second one is dangerous. It, well, you know, you got to cut loose if you're going to be footloose. So that's Ken Loggins. Joe, uh, as a Pentecostal, growing up in the Pentecostal uh-huh. church, was a community, was that a big thing uh, that, that maybe you were drawn to within the church? Is that something that, that, 
uh, like the same way we say speaking in tongues and all that. Is that, uh-huh. can you say that about the community of that church? Was it a strong community? Absolutely. I mean, that's, that is a very significant aspect of that particular denomination is the concept of the church as community and, you know, doing things like outreach and charity and, and things like that, as opposed to just showing up together once a week, yeah, listening to someone read from the Bible and move along. Right. One might say a involved. cause. Right. Sorry. I'm saying my folks are involved in a, it's kind of non-denominational, but it's mm. more Pentecostal than not. Sure. Uh, they get in the, into the spirit, but th- their whole social lives are wrapped around that church too. Absolutely. And in their, the little fellowship hall that they built, it's more like a pole barn or whatever. Yeah. All the baby showers and yep. Christmases and birthdays and anytime anybody's got anything going on, they all just pile in well, to this one place and, and at, do it together. That whole sense of camaraderie and, and love and things. It makes sense that that's what he would grasp onto because that's what he was absolutely mm-hmm. missing from his life. As, as, right. yeah, that's, you know, as, it, it, and that's he, why she brought him. That's why she yeah. brought him to the Pentecostal church to, to experience that community. But one would argue that he was enthralled a bit more by something else he witnessed there. And that was what, Joe, you were alluding to. And that was yep. the power of the preacher. Yeah. Yep. What he right. held over the congregation, I think yes. he, he looked to that as being more of his salvation than the whole family. I, salvation was the wrong term to use there, but you know, then his, you know, the family that it brought. And he was an observant child. He began talking about things he learned at the church and started preaching to other children in the community. I, I saw interviews with the children that grew up with him, children, mm-hmm. adults that grew up with him, and they talked about how awkward he was and then how awkward he was. He was awkward before, and then he got real awkward after because he wouldn't talk to you. He'd talk at you. He was preaching at you to people that didn't want to hear it, or even the ones that did. It was too a nauseam at times. He would literally hold mock church services in the loft of his family's barn and made them and made the other kids his captive audience. Mm. Uh, one time, he even locked up his friends in the barn so they couldn't leave. Uh, many of these services were funerals <laughs> for dead animals, and some questioned where he kept finding "quote unquote" so many dead animals because they actually thought that he might have killed them. Just well, so one guy said he saw him, him kill a cat with a knife. You know, and right, right. There's a story of him hanging a, a dog uh, over a beam of a barn. And like hanging it. And I think it's also interesting that it wasn't just one church that he went to. He would go to all the churches. Right. Every single five or six of them. He would go and and go to those services and watch the preachers and watch happens and watch what would people react to. And he would kind of make a mental note of that. Which is an interesting thing that that's not inherently bad, especially if he's he's finding a home at the church. He's finding you're looking for what you want to find. Hone your skill, you know, and unfortunately, that's not the way it went. Well, this comes this comes back to nature versus nurture. Right. And kind of what John said, I mean, if somebody needs to be nurtured and they are brought to a loving church, then maybe they're going to find that loving community. That's not what he well, found. That's the and point. He, yeah, he, he didn't. He didn't. That's not what he saw in the church. Mm-hmm. Right. He was going to this church and all of the other churches for one thing and one thing only. And that's to pick up the skill set to have power over other people. At right. Ten years old. Right. He was ten. And the brownies. I didn't think I could tie my shoes when I was Well, speaking 10. of holding, holding these skills, one of his ex-girlfriends, this Phyllis Wilmer, she said that she dated him in high school, and they had a prep rally for one of the basketball games coming up, and Jimmy, as she called him, decided to stage an elaborate funeral for the other school. She said he got up and started preaching and did an incredible job. He had the control and inflection, and it was like the real thing, but was all intended to be a joke. He was very self-assured on stage, and he had that coal black hair and piercing eyes that would look right through you. That's what they took away from him as a child. 
And he mm-hmm. did have that coal black hair. Like, he has that look that he's either a preacher or a mortician. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, like, I think it, it points out the interesting dichotomy of what we're talking about is he found himself immersed in a world that's very focused on that concept of community. And I can tell you, growing up in one of those churches, like, I was unusual in the church because I had a life outside of the church. I played sports in high school. A lot of the kids in youth group and stuff like that latched onto it because they didn't have other activities it's almost like and i say this not you know to to be offensive to anyone out there but like it's almost like that was the only thing that tied them together was not having anything that tied them together and then you get the dichotomy of that pastor being looked at like the god figure Mm -hmm. and and i chat with my dad about this all the time is his challenge of you know that it's hard to have a group of people that call you pastor, not John, and that come, you know, they want to give you things all the time. And it's literally like you get put on this pedestal and it's a very real thing that he actively, you know, struggles with is ensuring that he never feels like he's allowing that to go and too it's, far. It's funny that Jones looked for the opposite, the opposite of that. Exactly. He, uh, yes. There's one time that a guy, a guy, th- this is a, a, a childhood friend of his, got up and left one of the services he was giving, Jones was yep. giving in the barn. And Jones says, you can't leave. And he left anyway. And he turned around, he sees Jones holding a gun. Yeah. And the the kid reports that uh, the kid started running and a shot was fired and he heard it hit the tree to his left. And then he went and like hid in the bushes yep. and, he, and he heard Jones yell. I don't remember the exact quote, but something like, you don't leave my stuff yeah. you know, talking and, about a harbinger of things to come right that that yeah. idea of it fueling whatever was inside Which, him that, how important that is it that was there at that young of an age that's right. a telling thing you know and time goes by his parents split up uh, he actually moved with his mother to richmond indiana he kind of had a chance there to get away from what he had been and reinvent everyone says i'm, I'm leaving i'm starting a new life well he works at hospitals and orderly and he met marceline baldwin she was an older nursing student Graduated early from high school back in December 48, and he started Indiana University the following year, and he married Marceline after his first term in 49. In Richmond, in Richmond though, there is a, a bit, a little bit before that. When they first moved there, he still had that deal where people weren't really, you know, he didn't have a big friend group. Right. And his mom was still out, you know, mm-hmm. working and also drinking and carousing and, and, and you know. She's now back a, on, the, string on the market. Of, yeah. Right, a string of relationships. There was a neighbor that he had uh, that lived across the street. There was a lady that almost became like a surrogate mother to him. And this was uh, when he was in his teenage years. And that woman, he still wrote letters to her all, all the way to the end, up until Guyana and the very end of it. He was still corresponding with this woman. Funny and how, she was impact. So the had. one person that really felt uh, he had maternal attention from that was so powerful to him that he maintained that relationship throughout even when he was acting like an insane god figure to mm-hmm. all these other people and causing so much pain and suffering to so many he compartmentalized that spoiler somehow. alert jeez know where that was no, going. That was a well, no we do there was an interesting part and in him. other news we're only going to do one episode now <laughs> <laughs> yeah that took care of the second oh well so well, what we're going to guys I'll have a good one <laughs> thanks for having me let's go ahead and go to break real quick because we kind of told about his childhood and obviously he's grooming himself to 
be in front of people. When we come back, we're going to talk what it's like when he actually found a flock of people that he could lead. That's coming up on and, Hysteria. And monkeys. <laughs> That's important <laughs> on Hysteria 51. <laughs> Every good monster. They don't have to have wings. They just need to be Hola, David. Me amo Brent. Bonjour, uh, Brent. Je m'appelle David. You didn't do Spanish. I thought if we were going to do this together, we'd do the same language. Oh, sorry. <laughs> that's uh, that's on brand for us. I, that, I I just thought romance languages yeah. was the key. Everything I say is romantic, and that is thanks to Rosetta Stone. <laughs> you guys, we, we've been touting these things forever. We love Rosetta Stone, and we actually are users. David, you've really been using it even for longer than I. What's your experience been like? Oh, it's been great. The thing is, uh, you really get to learn how to speak and think in that language with it. So it's very high on pronunciation too. So <laughs> you can, you know, learn how to speak. And you know, our show is all about proper pronunciation. <laughs> in that pronunciation. Yeah, that's right. But it's, it, they design it for long-term retention, you know, it, and yeah. uh, if you don't get the pronunciation right, you, you say it until you do. And then, you know, that, that just seeps into your head. Well, and that's why, you know, this has been trusted by experts for 30 years and, there's over 25 different languages that you can learn and people, millions and millions of users use it because like you said, it does seep in and you're using it with, you know, you get speech recognition and mm-hmm. it, it hears you. You get to use like the built-in true accent features that gives you this pronunciation, which is super convenient and you can do it at your own time. And I don't know if you can know this, but I'm all about value and you get a one-time purchase, 25 languages. If I learned all 25 languages, I'd be so confused. Or really cool. <laughs> I have to go in and out. But you'd be real marketable. But literally, though, this is something that we use, and we have both of us have given the seal of approval because we wanted to do this long term, and uh, it's something that uh, it works, you know. And we don't yeah. we don't do long term um, stuff like this, and this is this is the one that we've chosen, and we love it. So, all you guys got to do don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now, as we've told you a thousand times, and it's always now, right now. Get now. started. For Larry, limited time, his Air 51 listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. How much? 50%. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your unnatural life. Wow. Redeem, redeem, redeem. How do they do it? Rashate, you're oh. 50% off. <laughs> Rashate. <laughs> redeem it. 50% off rosettastone.com slash today. Do it today. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when Brent and I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, we thought, man, what's the catch? But after talking to him, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Brent is trying to plan right now and says that it works like a charm from Chicago to Nashville as he makes his big old move. Mint Mobile is working for him. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. 
So ditch the overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited-time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash hysteria. That's mintmobile, M-I-N-T-M-O-B-I-L-E dot com slash hysteria, H-Y-S-T-E-R-I-A. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash hysteria. $45 upfront payment required. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. I would like to run. Run so far, far away. Far away. Yeah, that makes sense. So the monster, he needs a flock, right, John? I think that's what uh, a monster does need a flock, and and Jones set out to get one. In 1951, he began attending gatherings of the Communist Party USA in Indianapolis. There it is. He became flustered with harassment during the McCarthy hearings, particularly regarding an event he attended with his mother, focusing on Paul Robeson. After which, she was harassed by the FBI in front of her coworkers for attending. By the way, another thing that just adding to the unusualness of his upbringing, I know that when I was young. My mom wasn't taking me to bizarre political rallies, let alone communist uh, <laughs> witch hunts. Well, and his father, who didn't ever talk to anybody or go anywhere, somehow was he was still involved with the Klan. He, he actually was part of yeah. the. Klan. They really Is that liked right? Because he never he never disagreed. <laughs> his dad his dad was a member of the Klan. I did not know that. Yeah, he actually talked about that was one of the well as we're going to find out a lot of the things he did were very good and he at used first. that at first he used that as he his upbringing made him realize that that was bad. Also, I'm surprised you didn't know, Kevin, everyone from Indiana is part of the Klan. Just note that I didn't say that because there is more than corn in Indiana. <laughs> At Indiana Bridge. Oh, yeah. He saw these things happening, and instead of going, boo, communism, he actually got angry at the ostracism of open communist united states because he thought hey this is a free country they should be able to speak and say if that mm -hmm. needs to be the third party that needs to be the third party that among other things provoked this seminal moment for jones which he asked himself how can i demonstrate my marxism the thought was <laughs> literally i'll infiltrate the church those are those are quotes from him and how can i demonstrate my marxism I'll infiltrate the church. I really did, did, think did. this is an important th moment to stop and talk about. This is where the disagreement or, uh, starts or two lines of thought veer off. If he entered into the church from day one to only hold power over people and to affect his own endings, God was never involved and it was only a, a means to an end, a path. And and that's what I believe. I, 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 I don't think he ever was trying to follow the Bible or follow the Lord or anything like that. And so right here where he says that he's going to take up the church, take up the cloth as a path to his own means. This is where it starts. I think there are various levels of this, right? I think it's saying nothing about God or what anybody believes. There are varying levels of people who come to religion and they say this is a way to power, mm -hmm. right? And uh, a lot of them, it's pretty harmless, right? It's it's the adulation, and then it leads to horrible abuse sometimes. And then with where, where we go with this, it's it's way worse, which is one of the reasons it sticks out. But it it is a way to draw people to power. Religion right. is the vast, vast, vast majority of people are not that. Of way. course not. But the yeah. ones that the ones you hear about are the ones that aren't and they, that are that right. evil, and they, they yeah. stick out. One of the things he always said was, "I will be to you what you need." He made his followers mm. call him father. Or, or dad, and 
he goes, you need a father, I'll be a father. If you need a God, I'll be your God. So follow me, not follow the Christian God who these people originally came in for. Follow me. And I like that, to bring in Elvis analogies whenever possible. <laughs> and here, here we go. Appropriate, because that people say he looked like an Elvis impersonator. <laughs> right, right. Which he did. Well, yes. and the thing with Elvis and his music is, is what it was so new about it. It was because Elvis had grown up in a predominantly black area, first in Tupelo. And he was also very involved in gospel uh, mm-hmm. singing and, and church and stuff. And so these these different kinds of music he, that he just grew up with that were just around him all the time, he was able to meld them and and just kind of instinctively meld them into what he put out later. I think in the same way, uh, Jones going to uh, mostly the tent revival preachers were the ones yep. that he really mm-hmm. uh, followed and watched and saw what they did but he also studied the books about hitler he was a very uh, right he was a very, huge uh, fan mm-hmm. on on hitler and not just hitler but stalin hitler, too stalin. Yes. and, and yep. so he had, he had all the greatest hits he loved the way yeah. that he that hitler could hold people in the Mugabe. palm of his hand exactly right, right. So it was that it was the Dear so God. his his means i think john's right in that i think his means were always a political one but knowing what he had seen just growing up and yeah. being fascinated by he was able to meld those two things what's together. fascinating to me is an emotional connection what's fascinating yeah, to me right. is to see someone like this who knew at such a young age what he wanted and how he was going to get it he knew what he wanted from such a young age and shaped himself from age like 10 to get this to happen that is crazy and 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 he he got his start in the church thanks to this in the Methodist district. The yeah, superintendent helped him. He didn't start with people calling him father. Or no, dad. this is no, horrible. But I'm literally, I'm literally thinking right now about that episode of The Office when they have the video of Michael Scott as a kid, and he goes, "When I grow up, I want to have a million kids so I can have a million friends." Oh, <laughs> <laughs> like literally, like that's this thing. It's that emotional, like. He he had this well, need to he was, manipulate people to be his you're right, right. block. But the, the thing was, he block. was an out and out communist, so he didn't think he had a prayer of getting a a church. And he did. This this Methodist district superintendent helped him get his start in the church. He became a student pastor at the Somerset Southside Methodist Church, knowing he was an out and out communist. Later, though, he claimed he left the church because his leaders barred him from integrating blacks into his congregation, which. I said he did a lot of good things. At the beginning, he does good things. So that time, he he starts wanting to bring in the the blacks and the the people of all different everything backgrounds. And he also starts witnessing faith-based healing at the Seventh-day Baptist Church. Those two things really shaped his future. A lot of the information about motivation comes from Jones himself. And so his motivation for leaving the Methodist Church was that they wouldn't allow African-American folks to integrate, which is very possible at that time in that place. Yeah, but it's absolutely. also very possible that he was just ready to move on and find his own flock. Yeah. And he he used that as the, the, the red herring yeah. uh, to, to, to get to move on. He, he did that a lot with his followers later, where he would say, they are after you because you're black. I am your savior and I will not let them do that. That I think is the point is, is when I've read a lot of the stuff where you get into this, the psychoanalysis of some of the things with him and, and the way he operated, 
it wasn't altruism that was leading to him saying yes. racism is wrong. It was, I need the largest tent possible. Why would I possibly exclude anyone? Well, yeah, because all these other people aren't me. listening to me. Right. That's important. And so he sees this as this, I think it's twofold. He sees this ethnicity that is looking for a, a place that they're welcome. And he could he could provide that. He could be that for them. And on top of that, he's seeing these, these healing services, <laughs> and he realizes Holy crap, it's bringing a lot of, of money. So he starts preaching specifically to the African Americans who he most wanted to help. He often used the, these healing rituals. He would have them come in. He'd do this in ways to attract new followers. And if you, you look, there's a lot of videos online talking about these things. He, I, I'm, I'm looking for someone. And one of the, um. the main ones is a woman who's in a wheelchair and he gets her to stand up and all of a sudden she's running and, and running and running. Well, guess what? That was his secretary mm-hmm. who was pretending to be mm-hmm. paralyzed and he healed her. And then guess what? People are like, Start this throwing is, money at this him, is know? also guys this is when he started doing the sunglasses right because he it allowed him to be able to read the notes that were being passed to him about people in the right and that's where because the people yeah. would be plants so would be in the see, audience yeah, listening so to people he could, and if they heard somebody say something like oh this is what's wrong with me i'm gonna i hope jim hills oh uh, right. yeah I, yeah then they would yeah. write the note and send it to jim that's, so jim right. could say, and then he sense that someone has is he, there an elise he, out there an elise exactly right. yeah it's literally like fletch lives fletch lives i was gonna say it Best televangelist ever. But also, did you guys have you guys read the stuff about where he he had like this like I think it was like a pol- like a turkey or chicken, chicken raw chicken. Chicken, chicken gizzards. It was a, a tumor yeah. that he took yeah. out of no, the cancer. Right. So yeah. They had a bag of chicken gizzards yeah. uh, behind the stage, right? And there was a keeper of the chicken gizzards, <laughs> or I'm sorry, of the tumors. That's a resume and builder. They would either uh, <laughs> either on my LinkedIn profile pretend <laughs> like he was <laughs> pretend like he would pull it out of somebody, and he would have the chicken gizzards in his hand. Or if there was someone from out. his yeah. inner circle who was in on the the game, mm-hmm. which most of them were. Uh, they'd have they'd have them cough it up, and the only thing I could think when I read that was, man, weren't people worried about salmonella? No, no, because they could get healed. Yeah, he'd heal. All joking aside, I really think though, and and I, I saw them talking about this, the people that were in on it, that were doing it, thought that he still could do it. A lot of them, he, they he, were so at far, first, yeah, yes, they were so far blinded that yeah. they're like, well, we're just going to. People don't want to come forward, so we're going to give it an oomph, and then yeah, they that's will. Exactly it. it goes back to it's that whole concept of, well, I'm not, I'm only lying to everybody else. Like you guys in the inner circle, I'm not lying to you. I'm doing it for a good reason. Yeah, you but there's a reason I'm doing, doing this, yeah. and it's and it's to bring more people into our flock to create our socialist socialism uh, for the world. Mm-hmm. I love it when he went uh, went just all the way with it and staged his own healing of himself. Oh, Did you remember yeah. this where um, somebody supposedly they walk out into the parking lot and oh, gunfire rings mm-hmm. out and then all of a sudden Jim is on the ground bleeding. Mm-hmm. You got blood coming out from him and they rush him in and they rush him in and then you find out that they blanks were fired and it was like a squib pack. And, and so but people don't know this. And Jim comes in later shirtless. Yeah, completely untouched and with no injury. Here's the best part. People freak they out. Hung that shirt <laughs> with the blood. He hung that shirt with the blood yep. in the church from there on out as a reminder of the danger that was after them. No one questioned why there was no hole where the blood was. Here's my question. I don't understand why he wanted everybody to be afraid. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's funny? So he's doing all these things. So like, we're talking about this. He eventually gets enough 
followers to start his own church. This church we're talking yeah. about. And yeah. he needed money to do so. And Chris, you, you brought this up. How'd he get it? He'll, he sold monkeys at, as pets door to door. That Literally is sold monkeys. So he would, he would get them crazy. from a firm in South America because uh, there was a, a newspaper article in the Indianapolis paper about him turning down a shipment because most of them were either sick or had died en route. And so that's kind of how it really got out that that's what he was doing. He would order all these spider monkeys from yep. South America and then, yeah, take them, take them door to door. Yeah. And then some of the people that would buy the monkeys <laughs> oh, would end up becoming so parishioners. He used, that, he used that as a way to, hey, you want a monkey? Can I talk to you about something I'm doing? You know, and that was a, a way into the. Yeah, well, hearts. sure. I'm already buying a monkey. It, so what else you got? Yeah, Eternal well, life? You know sell me a monkey. I'm going to listen <laughs> to what you're saying. It turns out BJ and the Bear was actually a biography oh. of uh, the early life of Jim Jones. <laughs> nice. now, now, of course, nice. they took artistic license, <laughs> license with it. Did but... Jim Jones sell bubbles to Michael Jackson? <laughs> yes, yes. That was a chimp. He only dealt in spider monkeys. Right. Keep it right. <laughs> Dang it. No right turn, Clyde. I feel like an idiot. <laughs> Yeah, sack the car, Clyde. <laughs> so the Tipple joined the Disciples of Christ in 1960, and Jones was ordained in 1964. The official name of it was the People's Temple Christian Church Full Gospel. Right. Well, because if you're no going to start a church, you want it to be really simple and easy to remember. Like that. So yeah. someone shortened it to but, the People's Temple. But he's Hatchy. doing all this. He's doing this, and he he's working with everyone, every ethnicity, yep. and people are taking note. People are really taking up people outside of the church that don't know this. You know, they're not seeing the faith healing, all this stuff. They just see this person who's being inclusive with everyone. In fact, in 1960, the Indianapolis mayor, this guy, Charles Boswell, appointed Jones director of the Human Rights Commission, which sounds laughable with what you know. Mm -hmm. But like I said, he was doing things that people weren't doing. He was ahead of his time yeah. in that way. Well, it also shows you that horrible people can be motivated to find ways to charm their way through these kind of things. I mean, you know, fast forward, well, I he think had it, tons of politicians like completely enamored with him, right. you know, to the end because and, and they wanted the influence over their people that he was having. He was almost like a, a curiosity to them. The strange bit about Jones in the late fifties and early sixties, especially is you got that really black and white yin and yang thing. Where, yes, we know now that he was motivated by uh, this desire for people to adore him and, and this adulation. But, man, was he really into it. The socialism and the social cure and the social oh, cause. That was his real interest. At Feeding first. people, yeah. clothing people, helping people, being with people. Racial he integration. Was, yeah. He, he, he was doing it to further those other ends mm -hmm. but he truly believed it and he truly was doing good things for right. people and you, and that's one of the things well, that just th those are makes him so fascinating things. to me do you uh, th that's a good question i think we probably all have different opinions on this he was definitely doing good things you can't argue that yep. but did he truly believe it that's a that's a much different question or the because the, the flip side to that coin is it again just like the church integration all of that was just a means to an end just to establish I, power i think he truly believed in socialism um and we'll get into that later well you know? yes and that was usurped by his need for power i think so yeah, I, think I think so i think that's the the tricky angle to your question john is because i i think there's there's degrees of that reality like i think he truly did believe that it was wrong the segregation that was happening in the united states 
However, I don't think he believed it was wrong because of the ways that we would believe morally it was wrong. He believed it was wrong because he wanted more inclusion into who he could con. But with so but would like wrong be the word he it. would use then? Well, and that's the question inside of his own the heart. Tricky uh, part yeah. of that question is like, well, none I, of us know. I think yeah. he would tell you. I 100% believed it, but what he means by that is not what we would mean by that. Yeah. Well, and he started acting out, being boisterous like he was, and even the mayors and stuff, the commissioners who he was working with were like, he cut it back. So he used that as a chance to get the uh, the adulations and stuff of the NAACP, the Urban League and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. They saw him as this militant leader, and he he's... Let my people go. That's he was all about that. So and now, they saw him as a, a a true leader. Now he's seeing himself as Moses, right? We're right. starting with Moses. Right. And mm-hmm. he would um uh, he would also use his family for this. So he uh he adopted he and his wife Marceline adopted a lot of kids. And they actually only had one natural born kid and he loved to refer to his family as his rainbow family because they were they were from lots of different ethnicities. He and he and Marceline um they adopted uh, a, a number of kids over the years. First, they started with three children of Korean American ancestry. Then, in 1954, and he, his, he and his wife also adopted Agnes Jones, who was partly Native American. Uh, Suzanne Jones was adopted at the age of six in '59, and then in June of '59, the couple had their only biological son. I referenced earlier, Stephen Gandhi Jones. Uh, his That's middle- a family name. It, it is. It is. It came from his family. <laughs> Stephen Gandhi Jones the seventh. <laughs> finally, in. Uh, uh, Another thing that he uh, he loved to talk about, two years later in 61, the Joneses became the first white couple in Indiana to adopt a black child named James Warren Jones Jr. Uh, The couple also adopted another son who was white named Tim, Tim Jones. Uh, And his birth mother was a member of the People's Temple, and his name was originally uh, Timothy Glenn Tupper. The funny thing, even when you talk about interviews with Jim Jones Jr., he always goes, they love to bring up the the first... A black child adopted yep. by a white family, and you gotta wonder how much of that was on purpose. A lot, yeah. I, I think, think so. because they, uh, I believe it was like he, they were looking. At, he cried, right? Jim Jones Jr. said he cried, and then his parents looked at them and they're like, "Oh no, 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 no! You don't want to adopt him. He's an African American child." And then Jim Jones sees that as an opportunity to be like, "You can't tell me what to do, and right. I will show you how pure I am. I will be yes. the first. Right, but uh, so yeah. this is the same time he's always he's, an ulterior he's helping right to racially integrate churches, restaurants, yeah. the telephone company, police departments, theaters, amusement parks, hospitals. After swastikas were painted on the homes of two African American families, he personally walked the neighborhood, comforting the locals yeah. and counseling white families, telling them. Don't move. You need to be with these people. That's something that you want to applaud. So I would be remiss if I didn't at this moment in time make sure that I pointed out that another episode is not going to go by without a Nazi reference because Jones <laughs> legitimately believed at this time he was formulating his belief that the opposite of communism was fascism and his he was fearful that somehow if he didn't steer people towards Marxist communism that they would steer towards fascists and, and Nazism. I, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that when you started that whole diatribe, you started <laughs> it with in time. <laughs> You're welcome, Joe. Seba, thanks for the assist. <laughs> Jones, though, the, the thing about it was that he wasn't loved for these things by people outside of those communities. 
considerable criticism was given on him for his integration views. White-owned businesses and locals were, they hated them. They were vocal about them. Yep. Swastika was placed on the temple. In fact, a stick of dynamite was left in the temple on a coal pile, and a dead cat was thrown at Jones' house after a threatening phone call. Other instances occurred, lots of stuff, although some suspect that Jones himself actually may have made That's up some question. or have been involved with a lot of these. The and did he, you'll never know. Did he hold a funeral for the dead cat? Well, did he, <laughs> he hold a funeral for the stick of dynamite? Unfortunately, <laughs> one of the other cats tried to run away and he yeah. shot it. Dead cat, I'm digging this guy. Ah, man, uh, see? Man, what an asshole. Yeah, well, uh, he he likes killing cats. Seabot, we we don't have to be concerned that Seabot will ever pull together a group of No, he has no charms. No. No, he has charisma, none of that. None of that. Nope, just weapons. <laughs> well, I guess you and Jim Jones have more in common than we thought. Seabot. His All weapon right. is an empty tube of toilet paper. Yeah. Hey, I you know, that's that begs that begs the other question. We know that later, as the People's Temple got larger and even got into Guyana, we know that a lot of the persecution that he talked about of his group was fake. Right. Okay? Now, I'm talking right. about of his group, not of African-Americans in mm-hmm. general or any other minorities in general, but specifically. You of his heard group. it here first, folks. John denies. When I'm editing this show, there's only, there's so many times we go. He said. If I ever hated you guys, I could just go back and cut the most vile things. <laughs> Be like, don't run for office is what I'm getting at. Because <laughs> I have all the master copies that weren't edited. <laughs> so uh, my point is, we we look at all of the, the swastika. I mean, we just talked about how he he thought that the exact opposite of communism was fascism and Nazis. Makes sense he would uh, use that, right? Right. Uh, we, you, the the piece of dynamite on the coal pile. It's not the only time that he's used dynamite. Like there are all these examples where you could go that I, I could see how that'd be bad people, but that also could have been Jones. Right. Let's go to break again real quick. And when we come back, let's talk about how he moved, what happened after he decided to take temple out to California. Cause that's where this kind of culminates the crazy. And they had been in Indianapolis up to this right. point, so, right? Well, in, okay. in Indiana area. Yeah. Uh, in multiple places. So uh, Indiana beach. Uh, there's more than, more than corn in Indiana. Man, all your Indiana listeners are getting pissed. Uh, no, we're happy. They're, they're, we're they we're talking about them. We've tripled the Indiana in. searches on the internet for my the in laws. <laughs> went to IU. Oh yeah, yeah. Indiana tourism is about to go through the roof. We- uh, <laughs> hey, <laughs> I've been to IU. I've driven past and seen the top of the Cougars' house. Melon camp. The Cougs? You can see you can see his roof just through the woods. Oh. Yeah. But have you been to Santa Claus, Indiana? I have as a child. I don't remember it though. He just but made that up. What so about French Lake? Santa Claus Land. Uh, we, uh, it used to be Santa Claus Land, now Holiday now it's World. Now Holiday World, yeah. yeah. So um when I was young we used to my parents used to go there. You know. Aw. All right. Coming back with more on Hysteria fifty one. So why do you think I'm- Well Temple's more old school? Yeah. Kevin, are you cuddling with the Cthulhu? Yes, I am. Standards. Yeah, no. It called me. You know, it gave me a call. There was a call. Cthulhu is literally ancient god for cuddle. 
Oh, yeah, I, that's you know, really I beautiful. Didn't, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. All right. We are back, kids. And the monster we've been speaking about, he's going to migrate. We told you before the break that it was about time to leave old Indiana mm. and Indiana Beach. Um, and as the People's Temple grew increasingly successful, the scrutiny of his, I guess, tactics, practices, mm. uh, well, they grew as well. And um, an investigation into his healing rituals was about to begin, so he decided it was time to move. Well, and, and of course... Everyone knows if you got to take evil on the road, where do you go? California. Well, and isn't it great in the be. in the pre-internet days where you could just be like, "Oh, they're finding out too much for me. I'm going to go two thousand miles this way, and <laughs> and nobody's going to know shit." Right. <laughs> See, now I didn't read this anywhere, but I believe he may have just found his way into a copy of The Grapes of Wrath. And just thought, uh, yeah, you know, if it's good enough for the well, Jodes, actually, it's good enough for me. What he really found himself into was a copy of Esquire magazine that, that named where he went to his, like, if they're going to nuke us, these are the nine places that you're safe to be in. And he goes, yeah, let's do that because my buddies, the commies, they're probably going to nuke us and vice versa. It actually wasn't his first choice. Uh, so the, the Esquire magazine you're talking about was the January 62 issue. And the article listed below... Horizonte, Brazil, mm. as uh, the safest place in a nuclear war. So Jones actually traveled there with his family mm. uh, with the idea of setting up a new temple location there. Uh, on his way to Brazil, uh, he actually made his first stop, mm-hmm. just a side little trip, to Guyana, yeah, then goes, a, a British mm, colony. What a lovely place. Mm-hmm. Man, I could really set up a few thousand acres right next to a disputed border and really make a living here. <laughs> Uh, especially but on I'm, ground I'm ahead of myself, but I digress. <laughs> <laughs> Is it possible he actually thought he was going to Guinea in Africa? Yeah, yeah. because Guinea and Guyana went, for many years and he of wanted my people life to were a challenge. Papa, of, well, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, so, oh, God no. damn it! He did a tour of Oceania uh, coming into play. <laughs> so he did a tour of South America. Even they even went up to Rio de Janeiro in uh, mid nineteen sixty three. But at about the same time, his associate preachers in Indiana mm-hmm. told him the temple was about to collapse without him. My so, best thing, just real quick about the Rio business, is because you know. Uh, as he went on through his life, he was able to get poor people to give him all their money, their social security checks or whatever. And most of his congregations were always poor folks. Mm-hmm. When he went to Brazil in the first place, he had a really hard time uh, finding people that had any money to give him. So where did he go? That hotbed of, of lucrative uh, folks, the Rio de Janeiro slums. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's where he where, went. Where, where the money Rio. flows like wine. Right. The slums of Rio. Yes. I want you to give me all of your belongings. You mean you want my shirt? Yeah. Okay. And a shirt that says St. Louis Rams 2019 Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> oh, too soon? No. Nah, well, wow. and isn't it interesting, by the way, that in 63, I believe you said that 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 the, uh, the people back up in Indianapolis are like, hey, stuff's going bad. He's not even ordained yet. Ooh. He was ordained in 64. 64. Yes. Yeah, so isn't that is, crazy? He was a, he was he knew what was coming. He was, he was planning everything. So this is in December of 63. He was in Brazil when they say, hey, this congregation. Yeah, right before right uh, I want to hold your hand. Hit right? Number one. Mm. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So he told his Indiana congregation that 
the world would be engulfed by nuclear war by July 15th of 67. So that would then create this new social scene on Earth and that the temple had to move to Northern California. Like I said, these nine places, yeah. you picked one of them, Redwood Valley, uh, because it's safe there. They were going to ride out the war and then they were going to be the ones to repopulate, repopulate this new Eden that he, was going to be left He was going to be the one. Redwood Valley near Ukiah, he chose because he realized that South America wasn't, there was no infrastructure, money there, no, no money, no, no yeah. resources, mm-hmm. like you're saying, Chris. So uh, according to religious studies professor Catherine Wessinger, while Jones always spoke of the social gospel's virtues, he chose to conceal that his gospel was actually communism until the late 60s. By that time, Jones began at least partially revealing the details of his, quote, apostolic socialism, that concept in his temple sermons. He also taught that, quote, those who remain drugged with the opiate of religion had to be brought to enli- enlightenment. What was enlightenment? Socialism. And it's funny. that That's a really interesting thing. This opiate of religion. This is when he starts actually preaching almost anti-religion. Right. Yes. And, one of the things he did, he was in a sermon, he's holding the Bible, and they talk about he throws it. He throws it on the ground and, and was just like, that's trash. I'm not, was what he was saying. Yeah. You don't need that because I'm here. And his congregation goes, yeah, that makes sense, so we're going to follow you. And just the Bible. Even in small doses, taking, let's just, for God, putting God down and putting himself in that place and how he's slowly yep. making that change. And that's an important point you just made, Kevin. Thank you. It it was slow. At first, it was, you know, God, 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 and then starting bringing in those socialistic ideals, and, and he would mix them. Uh, socialism so he, and he religion preach, do not mix well. But he would. Well, he would say, Marx, socialism is very Christian. Well, Marxism there is, is what there does go. not there, mix. Yeah. If you're born in capitalist America, racist America, fascist America, then you're born in sin. If you're born in socialism, you're not born in sin. So wow. he started to try to... He took the, the, out. the original sin from the Bible and made it his own that way. No, there's just there's a wild clip uh, because, you know, they taped everything. And there's a, a sermon that he was giving in Redwood Valley where he says it very distinctly and repeats it over and over. And he said the only way to get to equality is and he says socialism, socialism, socialism. Right. And he holds the Bible up and says socialism is God. When he went to California, he kind of moved from, okay, the people's simple is all about religion to politics. Can, he made that big spin. Kevin, I'm sorry. Can, yeah. Can I ask something here that mm-hmm. does anybody know? Is he heavy into the drugs yet? Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Okay. No. And he became even more communist. And members of the top church hierarchy had pledged not only their devotion to Jones, but also pledged over the, all their material possessions. You talked about that. In fact, towards the end, he was making $63,000 a month just off of Social Security that was turned In the 60s. And also, the people, wow. a lot of the people that were staying with him in, in Redwood Valley, they actually worked in the communities. They had mm-hmm. regular day jobs. And then they would come home from that eight to five and then work from like work six to two or three in the morning. And they could do that because their children, they didn't have to look at them. They turned over custody to him, literally signed over custody. So I'll take care of your children. And all of you the paychecks from their day jobs. Mm-hmm. So then we get into the 70s and we're moving into another. It's almost like with every new decade, he goes, well, I need to pump it up a little bit. Yeah. you know." And he began uh, deriding traditional Christianity as flyaway religion, really pumping the brakes on even calling himself, you know, well, it's where you get that embracing of the Marcus Marxist philosophy, which is the opiate of the masses is right. religion. It's, it's based in Hegel, but, uh, well, he said the that the, the, the Bible is a tool to oppress women, right. non-whites and he denouncing a sky God who was no God at all. Also in Redwood Valley, it's really, I think it's an important 
thing to get into uh, for Jim personally is because people were joining the, the growth of People's Temple in Redwood Valley. When it started, it was like 150, and all of a sudden, very soon, it was 300, 400, 500 people. Some of the new folks would see some, and some of the stuff like the public beratings and the public punishments in front of the rest of the, of the group started to be going on. And, and Jim started really, you know, being, you know, kind of rough with these people. And some of the new folks would be like, what the hell's going on here? And people would ask them, why do you continue to follow him if he does these things to you? And they all say, because the cause. It's the cause that's important, and mm. Jim is the cause. Jim is the one that's right. going to lead us to socialism, and therefore we can put up with this other stuff. And he Boy, did eventually. He did eventually admit mm -hmm. that uh, he wasn't. He didn't even believe in God. And in a 1976 phone conversation, he alternately stated that he was an agnostic and an atheist. You can't be both. I, that's true. That's yeah, true. but you know what? He claimed it. Um, well, I think that, my, my fault. My fault. Yeah, sorry. I, I mean, he, come on now. He, he claimed a lot of things, despite the temple's fear. That the IRS was investigating its religious tax exemption, Marceline Jones admitted in a 1977 New York Times interview that Jones was trying to promote Marxism in the U.S. by mobilizing people through religion, citing Mao as his inspiration. She oh stated, my quote, God! Yeah. She stated, "Quote: Jim used religion to try to get some people out of the opiate of religion." In one sermon, he said, "Quote." You're going to help yourself or you'll get no help. There's only one hope of glory, and that's within you. Nobody's going to come out of the sky. There's no heaven up there. We'll have to make heaven down here. And here's the thing, and it's all bullshit with Jim Jones. I, I, we all know that. But the, the, what really frustrates me just talking about this is then you just roll the clip of him talking about how he's God and I'm God and I am the father and I am the leader. So he's saying there, you know, no Christianity, but at the same time saying I'm God. I yeah, we got a clip of that. Funny you. Oh, okay. I came to show you that the only God you need is within you. None other. That's my only purpose in being here. When that transition comes, there shall be no need for gods or any other kind of ideology, ritual, tradition, and no need for God. The of the people shall be removed from the consciousness yes. of all mankind. Yes. This is a church. There shall be no longer further need. Okay. For anything this is a sermon that is behind the pulpit. We don't need for concerns about the tomorrows because every day will be heaven. Yeah. We will have built the heaven that man has suppositionally dreamed about. Yeah. We will have the heaven that we have been taught by the white masters would one day be given to us that we might be able to shine somebody's shoes in the throne room. But we shall have our freedom here and now. He's going to build heaven. Yeah. And in the meantime, I come in the phenomena of religion to get people out of religion. Yes. I told you right there. I came the, the very God of heaven in all of its might and fullness, with all the power that you said God had. I have come. The uh, Pentecostal style of Pentecostal preacher, preacher where it builds and builds and builds yes. and then it starts whispering. One mm -hmm. final and then he builds it again until a crescendo and then comes of down. All religious that is just so powerful. What an asshole. So number one, that is a, it's a black and white clip. He's in dark robes. He's in jet black hair. His jet black glasses. He looks like a judge in a, a rock and roll movie. Judge Dredd. The girl can't I was help say it. Some 80s like rock uh, uh, a music, music video. video. Thank there you. you go. He looks fake. I guess it was the time, but it looks so gaudy and just to me. His I, hair looks, looks like, like the Roy helmets. Like yes. the <laughs> <D> <laughs> hair helmets. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, he definitely. This, this is the only time I'm going to say this, but in his defense, the entire 70s looked fake, really. I mean, if you think <laughs> about very it. very good point. He systematically built a church based on religion and faith healings. 
but then continue to spout this socialist agenda. And he, he intertwines it into his teaching while simultaneously, as we just heard, removing religion and God. It's almost masterful that he did it. And everyone there, as you heard, is going, amen. amen. Praise it. God that you said. Just it doesn't matter what he says. Praise the Lord that you said is not real. And yeah. you know, how is that even a thing? And as you mentioned uh, earlier, uh, he, he went on to, to replace that religion with himself. Uh, he told members that they didn't need a God, but if they did, he would be it. Mm-hmm. Uh, call him God if yeah. you'd like, or and that's, Father. Right, exactly. And then later he'll start to talk about the burden that he took on being yes. that leader. Speaking of that burden, he, at this time, is in Redwood Valley when it starts, and when the dam is broken between with the sex stuff, uh, because yeah. Marceline... Uh, had back troubles. She was injured, and there came to it came to the point where she could not have sex with him. And up until that point, he wasn't having sex with his parishioners. But when Marceline was unable to, he decided that he ha- he had to get his needs met. I suppose, mm. and that is when he started having the affair with Carolyn Layton. And that's from there. It just blew up. Once he once he did it once. Once he uh, yeah, once he saw yeah. what happened with that. It went nuts. It's also worth noting that an edict in the People's Temple was no sex. No sex except (laughs) for him. And he said, he actually said one of the the guys who who got out talked about talking to him. He goes, I'm the exception and I can be here. If you need someone to have sex with or if you want to get fucked, he goes, I'll fuck you in the ass. He goes, only for you. He goes, it brings me no joy, but I'll do it for you because it might be there for you. In fact, I am the only heterosexual right. man alive. Everyone else is That's gay. right. All women That's are gay. That's one of my favorite all things. All women <laughs> and lesbians, all men are gay. Yeah. I am the only true heterosexual. He also said something like, if I have to, I'll, I'll take you to socialism on the tip of my dick or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously, he said something like that. Uh, I'm just... Yeah. Is this how he entranced Harvey Milk? Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. He did. Uh, in fact, uh, since you brought that up, let's talk about expanding. He, he's a monster, and he needs to expand. And, and within five years of moving to California, uh, the, the temple experienced a period of exponential growth. And, and they opened branches in cities like San Francisco and then you know San Fernando and, and Los Angeles even. And by the early 70s, he began shifting his focus to major cities because uh, you could only expand so much in, in Ukiah and small, and small places. Mm-hmm. He eventually moved the temple's headquarters to San Francisco. San Francisco. <laughs> uh, which was a... Did he wear ma- flowers in his hair? Right. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> it, was a, uh, it was a major center for radical protest movements at Man, the time. Man, what, what a time to be a... Fuck nut. What a that time to be a deadhead, <laughs> right? right? Am I right, yeah. Chris? <laughs> exactly right. The, get uh, on the bus. <laughs> it was actually a really good move for, for him and, and the temple because uh, it led him to be politically influential in Which San Francisco he politics. He had been grooming himself for that previously in his other places we yes. talked about. This actually uh, culminated with them helping in the election victory of George Moscone in 1975. And how did they become influential? He People would say, we need people there. And Jim Jones would be like, great, here's four busloads of people. Yep. And they would just send them there. Of yep. varying backgrounds. So he, right. what, and well, that's say, the thing, is, is his gospel of inclusion played perfectly right there. Right. So you and, say and, he, he, he brought in these four busloads of people. It's funny, he started buying greyhound buses and having them for just these type events now they did these across the country tours and he would take his people and they were membership drives but he was also a picketer on on call 
Yep. He, he not only would he show up with his people, busloads, whatever they needed, they were polite, courteous, and said whatever you needed them to say because Jones would tell them. And guess what? These San Francisco politicians loved it. Well, and that's where I cannot help but point out yet again how disgusting the manipulation is of that. That, that he was going to a hotbed of this concept of inclusion in in a United mm-hmm. States that was not that. And was using that to manipulate people to his own means. Now expanding out of the race part of it and into the homosexual community and, and putting a, 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 his reach into that and pulling that in and just right. like consistently finding ways to it literally is the same thing that disgusts me about current day, you know, prosperity preachers and, and televangelists who, who trick people out of their money. You're spreading a gospel of hope. Yes. In exchange for your own well-being and your own furthering of your power. Well, right. And the bus trips were also really, they were about getting more people, but it was really about getting more money. Right. That's exactly and, what it all was. And oh. those buses, the conditions on those buses, those buses Terrible. were meant to have 20 or 30 people on right. them. He would have 50 and 60 and 70 right. people, and there was no bathrooms, no anything. I mean, it was a misery yeah. on these buses. But he's doing it for, for gain, and he's getting the gain. And the gain. Well, and and what it turned into politically in San Francisco, Moscone won because, yep. uh, by and large, many people agree through Jim Jones' help. Yeah, uh, and got a convention and, and, center named after himself. Yes, and jo- and Moscone turned around and appointed Jones as the chairman of the San Francisco Housing Authority Commission. He's he's getting all this public support, and he turns it onto a, a, a national level. As for example, so Moscone and Jones met privately with Vice President candidate Walter Mondale. On his campaign plane, days before the 76th election, leading Mondale to publicly praise the temple. That's the hell of a thing. In That's first, why he lost in 1984, <laughs> by the way. I don't think that did him well. <laughs> the, the Jones contingent. First Lady Rosalind Carter also personally met with Jones on multiple occasions, corresponded with him about Cuba, and spoke with him at the grand opening of the San Francisco headquarters where he received louder applause than Mrs. Carter did. And here's the thing. When Carter came to San... Uh, Rosalind Carter came to San Francisco for a uh, campaign event, there weren't many people there. What did they do? They called Jim Jones. Boom! Mm-hmm. Here come the bus. bus well, and, and, and people are giving him favors. Uh, California Assemblyman Willie Brown serves as master ceremonies at a large dinner for Jones, attended by Governor Jerry Brown and Lieutenant Governor Mervyn Damali. People are there for him just because of the power he can and the influence he has. At that dinner, Brown touted Jones as what you should see every day when you look in the mirror in the early morning hours. A combination of Martin Luther King, Angela Davis, Albert Einstein, and Chairman Mao. What he Holy didn't realize shit. is what he was prophesying would come to be later is yeah. people would look in the mirror in the morning and he would be there standing he's over there. Standing over there. the show. But what was what the hell was Jerry Brown talking about like trying to compliment someone and comparing him to Chairman, Chairman Mao? Uh, well, Joe, it's... you mentioned earlier uh, Milk, Harvey Milk. Harvey Milk spoke at political rallies at the temple, and he wrote to Jones after one such visit. He said, quote, Reverend Jim, it may take me many a day to come back down from the high that I reached today. I found something dear today. I found a sense of being that makes up for all of the hours and energy placed in a fight. 
I found what you wanted me to find. I shall be back, for I can never leave. Again, going back to the manipulation here, this is a guy who is well known for his forward thinking and, and very, you know, early stance on, on homosexual rights and on, on the LGBT well, community. So community. An and this yeah. was, I mean, Milk was being pulled into this, and this was not some just guy off the street. This was a very influential politician. That's important you just said that because it wasn't just the African Americans that he was targeting. He's targeting anyone he could see as disillusioned or alienated groups, elderly, mentally ill, the gay, the lesbian, the single mothers, addicts, foster children. He touted his children as these examples and he used them and more. Uh, sorry, I just want to add one other point that we haven't touched upon too much. And, and I don't say this in, in some sort of positive way about him, but it, it is important to remember when you get a letter like that from somebody. He's obviously extremely charismatic yes. and he, he can just hold people in his grasp Absolutely. the way he wanted to as a child when he had right. these little preacher yes. sessions or funerals. So I, I think it's worth repeating, too, that he was extremely charismatic. The reason he targeted those those groups and used his charisma to to influence them is he wanted them to follow him because he right. would be the provider for them. He would give them a home. Yes. He was the only God they need. And in his utopian Marxist society, they would all prosper together. Well, and on that note, and back to what Kevin said, I think that's important because I think sometimes it almost becomes a glorification of that individual. And, and it's almost like somehow all the people who were following him were just losers. Right. And they weren't. They weren't. They were people who were being you know, downtrodden who were being held back by groups of people. But that's they, important. But that, too. They, they weren't losers. They weren't idiots. But it wasn't even just the downtrodden. It's, it's in San Francisco is when he starts also bringing in because of the politics, because of the socialism part is when he was getting not just uh, the poor and the downtrodden who are easily susceptible right. to religious appeals, but the socialist appeals started uh, bringing right. in very educated mm. Berkeley professors and academics and not poor people at all. And those people would also give everything they had to Which Jim. Which is crazy. So you're giving these things over. You're preaching at them. You're doing all these things. But then he held them. And he held them through abuse and fear, which is what really blows my mind. Members who were thought to have disobeyed rules that he or the temple, they were punished severely. The punishment was known as catharsis. Punishments ranged from total disgrace and humiliation and talk about women making them make them strip all their clothes off in front of people being paddled with a large wooden paddle whipped with a belt or forced to engage in boxing matches i mean if you fought back in the match it wasn't a boxing match it was it was just being one beat the hell you were out of a another believer yeah yeah so he's using physical harm keeping people on in fact in one particular catharsis session a 16 year old girl linda myrtles was called up for discipline because she had hugged and kissed a woman friend she hadn't seen in a long time. Normal response. In front of between six and 700 temple members, her and her parents were there. She was paddled on her buttocks 75 fucking times. And she was beaten so severely, one temple member said that the kids said her butt looked like hamburger. And she recounted that she couldn't sit down for at least a week and a half because of the damage that was done to her. That's crazy. And after catharsis, Jim would then come over and put his arms around the person and say, I realize you went through a lot, but it was for the cause. Father loves you. Yeah, for the you know, fucking cause. He, he, he loves you and you're a stronger person now. I can trust you more now that you've gone through it and accepted this discipline. Wow. And then they get they get that reinforcement. 
that other people probably watch this poor girl get beat, but then they see Jim Jones walk up to her and hug her and love her. And they're like, I want father to do that. And so I'll take the beating. But then on top of that, let's pretend you didn't do anything, but you're a leader in the church. He needs to have something on you. He would make you write letters incriminating yourself in acts or, or crimes you never did just so he had them. And for those who he didn't have write actual letters, yeah. when they'd show up, they'd, they'd hand out to the entire congregation a piece of paper, and they'd have them sign their name on the bottom of the piece of paper and then turn it back in. That way, if you ever abandoned the church or did anything untoward towards the temple, they could type out on the top a confession to something horrible. I abused, I sexually abused my children. I committed a murder. I did this. I stole this. I stole that. And they had your signed confession. That's exactly what happened with Grace Stone. Grace Stone talks about, she signed her name to blank pieces of paper. They weren't even the letters that said the thing. Right. There was blank pieces of paper that she signed and that Jim actually did produce one that said that she molested her own kid. Well, and then we're getting into something very telling that he did. And one of the things that he he forbid his people from drinking alcohol. One day they come and he's like, hey, I'm going to give you guys a chance to drink alcohol. Oh, man. They pour wine for everyone. Everyone drinks it. Once the <laughs> wine, yeah, like you haven't had a you haven't had a drink for a while, but you actually kind of like the suds. They all drink, and Jones like, guess what? It was poison, and we're all going to die together. Mothers cried. You know, children are freaking out. Members tried to escape the hall, but were drove back. You had other people holding them back. Eventually, they sat silent, and literally everyone waited to die. Jones then tells them he hadn't been poisoned at all. It was just a test of loyalty and that leaders, they had been studying each and every member's face during the fake out to see who was loyal to the cause. And not. those people that wanted to leave and not let their children die, fuck you. You're against us. You're not as good as everyone else. Why'd you look at me when you said that? I always look at you when I uh, say fuck you. Oh, okay. Got mm-hmm. it. So, I mean, between the picture we've painted so far. It's pretty, uh, isn't it, it? It, it's, it's, I mean, this guy is a, he's a powerful guy. He's got plenty of Who was it? Who could it possibly be? Was it? Oh, I don't know. Jim Jones? Yeah, no, it's just Jim Jones. Um, he, he had, <laughs> it's just Jim Jones. He had plenty of political <laughs> allies. And, and, and he had allegiances. He even had uh, members of the media that wouldn't report against him mm-hmm. because they had, they had formed an allegiance. But, not everyone was falling for it. Between his inability to stay out of the public eye, he, he had such an ego that he had to go get that housing commission job. You know, he 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 had to st- he had to go to those other rallies. He ha- he wanted to be in the public eye, uh, and so between that and then the reports, the abuse that was happening in his church, the spotlight started to zoom in on the People's Temple right. and Jim Jones, and and perhaps perhaps it was time to find a new home to bring this utopia to reality. That also maybe happened to be outside the long arm of the United States federal government. A nice place, I don't know, maybe South America. That Who might knows? Work. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, so before we close in uh, t- today's episode, kids, any final thoughts on what we know about Jim so far uh, and, and, and what what's happened thus far? Yeah, I'll go first. He's a monster. He's a fuckhole. And unfortunately, people listen to him. And that's what's crazy to a point. But when you are following someone like that and they start to go right off the rails i start to blame those people but again it's like we said last week people that are in a cult don't really realize they're in a cult so right the wine easy to be on the outside looking in exactly the wine fake out you know the, the boy that cried wolf i think most people if they fall for thing once or twice they're not going to continue to just over and over go for it but that wine thing he did that a lot 
not just to that congregation one, but in the in the planning commission small group meetings. Yeah, he called them white and, night sessions, and we'll get into that next week a lot. Yeah. But yeah, but absolutely. but even just still in San Francisco mm-hmm. and the, amongst people, he would he would do the wine fake out like more than a few well, times. he's conditioning them, he's getting them ready. This is just what you're used to, so it's something you do. And also, this is when uh, in San Francisco is when he really the phenobarbital really took hold, and he was just gobbling it. So he could appear to be the superhuman person who just worked constantly all day and night. And he would, it was again with the Elvis. He would, he would take tons of speed to stay up all day and night. And then at five in the morning, take a ton of uh, tranquilizers to go to sleep. Yeah. But sleep for like three hours. Right. Yeah. Because then they start taking speed again. What do you sleep for? Uh, I sleep heck? for peace. I, I mean, three hours is like Give enough wasting time. Joe, any, uh, any final thoughts before next week? I think it's interesting, you know, with these kind of things that it's it's easy to go one way or the other to to somehow ex- like put him on a pedestal as though he was some master manipulator and he was a manipulator, no doubt about it, or to put the people, you know, whatever the opposite of a pedestal is, and and say these were idiots. But uh, it's like pedestal. Yes, oh. that's exactly oh. what it is. Well, if it's pedestal, oh. I guess it would be an adultistal. Uh, would be the opposite. Uh, but anyways, I'm sticking with my original. There's there's this cycle that begins to happen where he believes more and more of what people are telling him that are are following him, and the followers believe more and more because of you know peer pressure amongst everyone else. Plus, they see this stuff happening, and it's like it's like Brent says, they don't know they're in a cult, and it just spirals over and over and over again and i think that's where it gets really sad i think that the the best quote is when jones says and this sums up everything about the parishioners and like why can they do this how can they do this keep them tired keep them poor and they will never leave right right that's exactly you're you're the no longer just their preacher they're whatever you're their lifeline yes and you're their hope. Yep. But yeah, working think, them, working them 20 hours a day. Is, you, know, right. you can, I mean, it's literally, mind. you read, you read the books about, you know, the Scott, the Stockdale principle in, in POW situations, or you read about John McCain and in, in the POW situations. And that's what these guys talk about is ho- the power of hope. How, how unbelievably powerful that is that people can go through the worst torture of their lives. If they think maybe tomorrow there's salvation. And I think that's where you get into this manipulation of hope. And, Which and is crazy to me, though, because he was preaching there is no salvation. It's here right. on earth. We'll build it for ourselves. By the way, I'm going to whip you until your ass yeah. is some hamburger. My, my take on it is he has spent all this time, everything we've talked about over the last hour plus, building a house. And now he's ready to put the furniture in. Right. And like he's he, the whole time he's been setting this thing up. Since he was a child, I really yeah, I so agree with I, that. I, yeah. Yep, 100%. Jim Jones... Uh, I think evil's a good word, and, but I, I, I want to go back to what I said at the beginning of the episode, which is that uh, uh, he was a narcissist, an extreme narcissist, who further and further drove himself into paranoia with drugs, with his pursuit of power. And and as he isolated himself more and more, he tried to bring his flock in more and more to comfort him more. Uh, and he, he more and more said, they are coming to get you. They are coming to get you. And you said abuse and fear. They are coming to get you. And it, it turned into, I'm here for the socialistic cause to, I am the cause to, I am God. And, um, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's, it's just reminiscent uh, of some stuff. And speaking of, uh, speaking of narcissism, Seabot, let's get your take on this. What, what are your thoughts on, on everything we've laid out so far? If you place a picture side by side 
of the Hadron Collider and the Aztec calendar, there's an eerie similarity between the two. Uh, I, I, I don't doubt that that was his takeaway. <laughs> I don't doubt that yeah. was his takeaway. So, yeah, Nation, what do you guys think? You can let us know by hopping on Hysteria Nation. Just go to Facebook.com slash groups slash Hysteria Nation. Also, you can find us at Facebook.com slash Hysteria 51 Pod on Twitter at Hysteria 51 Pod. You can find us on Patreon slash Hysteria 51. Get extra episodes, talkbacks on this. And if you forget any of this, go to Hysteria51.com. I think that's the easiest way, right, John? It's a good website. I like it. I like yeah. to spin the wheel of conspiracy. <laughs> it is a fun I, game. I just sit there and spin it over and over again. So we're going to be back next week talking way more about this. Are we going to invite this entire panel back? Uh, you know, if they're good. All right. We'll see. We'll see how many beers they buy us after the show. With that said, I've been Brent. I've been Joe. Chris Mark. I've been Kevin. I've been John. He's been Conspiracy Bot. Stay woke, meet sex. It was terrible. It was just terrible. I'll never get over it as long as I live. That's it for another edition of Hysteria 51. John and Brent will be back next week with yet more of the unexplained, the unexplored, and the unheard of. <laughs> oh, if it's unheard of, how will they know about it? Anyway, if you want to suggest a topic, give us your thoughts, or just make fun of Conspiracy Bot, that's my favourite. Join us in our Facebook discussion group, Hysteria Nation. Just log on to Facebook and search Hysteria Nation, or you can always tweet us at Hysteria51Pod. You've been listening to a fourth-hand joint.